Well, take your Bibles, if you will, and open with me back to Isaiah chapter 40 this evening. You've got the outline provided. I know that you can see that. I also uh, appreciate the cross-references being made available because I may be from Texas, but good luck keeping up. (laughs) Somebody's already said it looks like a three-hour sermon from the outline, but I can do it in just under one. So it's because I talk really fast, and if I waited for you to turn to the cross-references, we'd never make it. But tonight, title of the message to conclude our study through Isaiah chapter 40 is the everlasting God. I preached through Isaiah, completed that just over two years ago, and then immediately went into a series through the book of Matthew. We've made it all the way to chapter 23, because Matthew, of course, quotes Isaiah more than any other New Testament writer. When I was preaching through Isaiah 40 and preparing for this, I went back and I listened to my message and realized and said in preaching that I think... There is a whole sermon in verse 28, and I didn't preach it in that series, so God's given me another chance. (laughs) But as we close out, in these final verses, in verses 27 through 31, three times we see the words weary and faint. And as we look at what Judah is facing and what Isaiah is preaching, and as we look at the history of the remnant that God always calls and uses... We know that there are a lot of times that we grow weary. Now the Bible tells us in Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So we're encouraged. Don't be weary. You're going to be tempted to be weary. You're probably even going to want to give up at times. Don't. 2 Thessalonians 3, 13, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Just an out and out command from Paul. Don't let it happen. Makes you feel wonderful then when you are weary. Matthew 9.36, when he saw the multitudes, Jesus was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like having no shepherd. Hebrews 12.3, for consider him who had endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. We're warned about this throughout the scripture. Revelation 2.3, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. But we have to confess for all that we're told not to become weary, and we're told in Isaiah there's a cure here for weariness that we find in the Lord, we have to confess that there are times in the Christian life and in ministry that we just get tired, that we get worn out, that we get burned up, used up, we get frustrated, we get irritated, we get agitated. And we know all of those are fruits of the Spirit, right? (laughs) But as we deal with that weariness... We have to be reminded, one of my favorite verses in 1 Thessalonians is chapter 5, verse 14. Paul says, We exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. That word for warn the unruly, I appreciate this because it's a, a Greek phrase that means don't walk out of step. It has a reference to marching like you're in the military. If one person gets out of step, you're going to throw everybody off. My favorite illustration of that, if you've never seen it, go watch it. Abbott and Costello in Buck Privates. And Abbott trying to teach Costello how to shoulder arms and march. And of course they do it as only they can do it. It also meant to not show up for work. Not just to be out of ranks, but to not show up and do what you needed to do. Now, pastors, that's never happened in your church, has it? Has there ever been a time when people just didn't show up? Has there been a time you wished you didn't have to show up? Well, we're told to warn those who are walking like that, but then we're immediately told, comfort the faint-hearted. 
Those who are near fainting, comfort them. And the word for comfort, of course, means support them. Hold them up. Don't let them fall down. Don't let them faint. And that's reiterated by uphold the weak and be patient with all. Now, my, my favorite part about learning Greek in Bible college was that when you learn to be patient with all, you learn that all means all, and that means I have to be patient with everybody. Don't try to drive on the interstate and fulfill this verse, right? Be patient with all. Some immediately would say, well, you have to be patient with yourself. Well, we're beyond that. You have to be patient with every irritation, with every agitation, with everything that will test your patience. Because we are going to grow weary and we are going to be tempted to faint, to fall away. Or sometimes, sometimes don't you wish in the Lord's army that you could just sit down for a minute and just rest. Well, we're missing it because we're looking for something to fulfill our need and we're not finding what Isaiah closes with here. And that is if you really want to find rest, you've got to see the Lord. You've got to have a vision of who he is and what he's come to do. That's the complaint in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? After the promises of comfort and all of the things that has been opened for us by the preachers who have come before me, now we read, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? God doesn't see me. God doesn't know what I'm going through this is what that sounds like. There are times that we will actually denigrate God and say, God doesn't care. Maybe God's cursing me. He's obviously not paying attention. The follow-up there is, my just claim is passed over by my God. I took a complaint and God didn't answer. And it's, it's, you know most of the time it's not that He didn't answer. It's that we didn't like the answer or we were told to wait for the answer. And wait, I promise you, we'll get there at the end. Wait is every Christian's favorite four-letter word, isn't it? Wait on the Lord. Oh, it's going to kill me. Well, we're supposed to be learning to wait. We'll get to what that is here in a moment. This also is a theme through Scripture. David how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Habakkuk, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry and you not hear and even cry out to you violence and you will not save? It's the idea that Habakkuk says, I can come to you and cry out that something unjust was being done and you won't pay attention. Do you ever look around our nation and wonder, does God see the injustice? I promise you he does because what we see happening in our country is the judgment of God. That's why we need to find the comfort of God for His people while He is pouring out His judgment on a wicked nation. But we might ask, Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue me from their destructions, my precious life from the lions. How long? But we think here in the text, the people think God has forgotten. God's not paying attention. But how often is it in the Scripture that we do read that it's we who have forgotten? How often does God tell us, you need to remember me? These things are happening to you because you've forgotten that I'm your God. You've forgotten who I am. You've forgotten what I've promised. And it's, it's not that it's gone from our mind that we can't recall it. It's that we just choose not to listen to the truth of the Word as the Spirit tries to illumine our minds to the reality that we're walking in. We try to repress that. Oh, I didn't forget God. In reality, what we find is that I'm afraid in the evangelical church, especially in the West, 
It's not that we have forgotten God, it's that we've never met Him in the first place. It's that the God that's being preached and the God that's being worshipped is not the God to be beheld in Isaiah chapter 40. He is a God after our own making. A.W. Tozer said our problem is that we have humanized God to make Him relatable. We have deified man to make Him the end all of God's program and we've minimized sin. In doing that, we have indeed forgotten who God is. And that's the immediate answer from the prophet to this false claim that God's not paying attention. Have you not known? Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? His understanding is unsearchable. I put the point in my outline, not as a question, who is God, but as a statement, who God is. We need to be reminded who God is. How do we learn who He is? Well, He gives us the answer. He says, have you not known? Have you not heard? Now, of course, the question is rhetorical. Of course we've heard. Of course we've known. This is, it starts at the beginning. What is the rhema? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. We know who He is. He identifies Himself. This scripture is His self-revelation of Himself to us. We have known, we have heard. And you might say, well, I've never been to a sound church. I've never heard the Bible preached. I've never heard the name of Jesus. Look up. Go outside and look up. Creation declares to us who He is and what it is that He's done. But the answer to these questions is, have you not known? To know something is by experience. Have you not known who God is? This is critical to our salvation because this is how Jesus defines being saved. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. We can know all about God and all about Jesus, but if we don't know Him, we can't claim to be born again or converted. I heard a preacher recently who said, if you look at the church in America, you have to look at it right now through the lens of understanding that the majority of what we see in the pew and in the pulpit is unregenerate. Otherwise, it just doesn't make sense. We don't know God. Eternal life then is lacking. Second Peter tells us in the first chapter, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. You realize that in knowing Jesus, we have been given everything we need for life and for godliness. What more is there to need? Everything I need to live, a life that's pleasing to Him, and everything I need to be godly is given to me in knowing Jesus. Not knowing who Jesus is, knowing Christ. A relationship with Him. We also see the answer to the question, have you not heard? We hear how? By exposition. This is the Word of God being proclaimed to us. I loved it in his book, Spiritual Depression, Its Cures and Its Causes. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the problem is as we meditate on how unworthy we are or what our troubles are or what our depression is caused by, he says what we do is we continue to reinforce the reality that we're living in instead of preaching the truth to ourselves like we should be doing. To deny ourselves and preach the truth to ourselves. 1 John 5, John writes in verse 13, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the Son of God. And of course, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. That's why we preach the Word of God and not the opinions of preachers. 
That's what I love about these fire conferences is you're going to have four or five preachers and every one of them is going to come from a different background, a different education, a different conversion story, some of them even from different denominations previously, different faith backgrounds, different styles and methods of delivery, and yet when every one of them stands up and preaches, we're hearing the voice of God because we preach His Word. And faith then comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. What's revealed to us here then is the solution to our temptation to grow weary and to faint. Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary, his understanding is unsearchable. This is what we need to know and this is what we need to hear, who God is. Who is he? The everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth. The everlasting God. This brings us to the attributes of who God is, His nature, His essence, His character, how He has revealed Himself to us. In Isaiah 57, 15, He tells us, Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with Him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. The high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. Pastors, I want to encourage you, and if you're Sunday school teachers, I want to encourage you, consider doing a series on the attributes of God. Go back to several that have been written, several good books that are out there that you can go through that will give you a good summary for this. I did this a few years ago in our Sunday school hour and basically did a combination from about four of the great Reformed systematic theologies that are out there, and we did a 140-lesson study on the attributes of God, and it revolutionized our church. It revolutionized me as a preacher because when you learn and you study and you see who God is, these arguments that we have with our Arminian brothers about the sovereignty of God, just study the passages that talk about the sovereignty of God as a character quality of who He is, not a part of Him. He is all of His parts, not a sum of. Each of those attributes He is completely and fully and perfectly. And when you see that he's sovereign, I love it that Bill Johnson at Bethel Church in Reading one time said that he wanted to defend the sovereignty of God. And he said, what we have to understand is that yes, God is sovereign and that means he's in charge, but don't be confused and think that means he's in control. If God is in charge, but God is not in control, God is not in charge. That's not sovereignty. We understand that the ideas of decisional regeneration and free will, this all comes from the fact that we think that we are sovereign, that God somehow has yielded His sovereignty to us. And hopefully we're smart enough to figure out what to do with it. When you see God is, you have a reaction like Isaiah did when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And we know this. We know what Matthew tells us about this. When Isaiah in chapter 6 saw the Lord high and lifted up in the temple, you know who he saw, don't you? He saw Jesus. And when he saw him in his holiness, his first words out of his mouth were to curse and condemn himself. He saw God for who he was and then he saw himself for who he was. And he said, woe is me, I'm undone. It's a curse of judgment. And when he says, I'm undone, I am coming apart at the seams. I'm beside myself. It took an atoning sacrifice as the coal was taken from the altar and applied to his lips, signifying his heart was being purified because what's in the heart comes out the mouth. And suddenly, Isaiah was all ready to go. Here am I, send me. 
Fantastic. I'm so glad you're eager and zealous to sign up, Isaiah. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? I will go. Here am I. Send me. Fantastic. They're not going to hear a word you say. They're not going to do it. But you go and you be faithful. You go and you preach and I'll call my remnant out. So let's look at the attributes of God. Just a few of them. There's three I want to look at. The everlasting God. He inhabits eternity. The eternality of God. God perfectly transcends all limitations of time so that he is without beginning, without ending, and without succession of moments in the experience of his being and in his consciousness of all other reality. Time has no effect upon God. That's why he can tell us he is the first and the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Because here is, here's, here's what we need to wrap our minds around to understand Isaiah 40 in its fullness. When we walk into a situation that ends up driving us to weariness and being close to fainting, we have to realize that when we walked into that moment, God was already there. He inhabits eternity. Time is a created thing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Time was part of that creation. That means He stands outside of that time. He interjects Himself into it, but when we get to that next moment, He's there waiting for us. The best picture of that is the father of the prodigal. The prodigal had his speech rehearsed but dad saw him walking down the road before he'd even rounded the bend because he was looking and waiting for where he was going to be. That's why when we can get to the end, God's already there. You understand, prophecy is not God telling us what's going to happen just because he's ordained it. It's because he's already been there. He is there. He's timeless. We get lost in time. We get lost in these moments and we forget, yes, he was the first, but he's also the last. He was there when he found us, and he's going to be there when he calls us home. And there's not a moment in between that he's not involved in. We can understand God's eternality by looking at his other attributes. An argument from God's omniscience is that God is all-knowing, and since his perfections are his essence, and his experience of his essence in itself, there is no past, present, or future. His experience of succession does not control, confine, or condition his existence. The argument from his omnipresence, God transcends all limitations of space. He exists outside physical space and yet exists within every point of space. Therefore, he must exist outside the moments of time or else he's confined to being present within space as it exists, only in the moment. An argument from God's immutability. Since God's essence cannot change, he must not be conditioned by changing time. If God exists only in each moment, he must begin to exist in each succeeding moment, a conclusion that contradicts his immutability. Looking at God's independence, God's essence depends upon nothing for its existence. You understand, people will tell you God needs you to decide to believe. God needs you to repent. God needs you. To God. God does not need anything. What we find is that he cannot be dependent on the moments of time for his existence. If God only exists moment to moment, then he is dependent on the existence of that moment. Looking at God's omnipotence, since God has active power over all things, he must exercise power in the future and the past in order to be omnipotent. If he's only existing in the current moment, he doesn't actually have power over the past or the future, but they have power over him. If God only exists from moment to moment, his existence actually ends in one moment and begins in the next. He has no control over the change of moments, but rather is conditioned by their changing. Does that, that sounds like the God that's being preached out there. A God that's woeful and waiting and just yearning for you to decide to be smart enough to come and do what you need to do. No. 
He transcends all of that. We also look at His omnipotence. We're told here, God neither faints nor is weary. Psalm 121 verse 4 says, Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. God has the ability, the power to do anything consistent with His nature. Genesis 18, 14 says, Is there anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Job 42, 2, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours, meaning the Lord, can be withheld from you. Jeremiah 32, 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Jesus looked at the disciples when they questioned him about who could be saved. They thought salvation was impossible the way he preached the gospel. And he said, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. He does whatever he pleases. That's Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in heaven and He does whatever He pleases. Isaiah 14, 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so it shall come to pass. And as I have purposed, so it shall stand. Isaiah 46, 10. Declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. One of my favorites, Daniel 4, 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Paul talks about those that would, as a pot, talk back to the potter. I've got something for you to remember. Just remember this. The only pots talking back to the potter are cracked pots. That's how it works. How would we dare? Paul assumes and is ready for the objection. The pot doesn't talk back to the potter period. We're clay. He is the potter. He does as he pleases. This also leads us to God's omniscience. His understanding is unsearchable. He tells us in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. When we think about what God knows, you understand that we're told that when we see Christ, we will know as we are known. You understand that still doesn't mean we're going to perfectly know everything there is to know about God. We're created beings. We can't comprehend fully God. We simply can't. I had somebody ask me one time, well, what about when we're glorified, when we're in heaven? I think that's why the eternal state is forever, because that's how long it will take us to understand who God is. Even with a glorified mind, we are created beings and we will never fully comprehend who God is. What a little God we've created in our minds. To look at His omniscience, it's based in God's perfect knowledge of Himself. Burkhoff said, All actual things outside Himself and all things possible and all actual in one eternal and simple act. God is always at all times perfectly aware of everything. Job 37, 16 says, Do you know how the clouds are balanced, those wondrous works of Him who is perfect in knowledge? 1 John 3, 20, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. He knows all things. We understand that God's knowledge is eternal, just as He is eternal. You know, God never learns anything. His knowledge never increases. If He could learn, if He could become aware of something new, then He was not omniscient and is not perfect. He cannot change. God's knowledge is defined, again, by Burkhoff as intuitive, inherent, and immediate. It does not result from observing or reasoning in successive moments of time. 
God's knowledge does have logical structure, but God is not learning. His knowledge is definite, precise, certain, sure, comprehensive. It's also eternally active and never passive because God's knowledge is active. It's also effective. It produces effects. You see, God knows the future because He's not bound by time. He is eternal. He sees the beginning from the end and everything in between. He predicts the future because He's telling us what He has decreed or brought about. And as it happens, the prophecy is fulfilled. But He already knew that was going to happen. He's been there. That's why His Word is sure. We're not waiting on God to fulfill His Word. If He said it, it will be. That's why Paul in Romans chapter 8 can tell us whom he's called, he's justified, whom he's justified, he's glorified. I don't know about you, but I'm not glorified. This body hurts sometimes. Why do you use the past tense? Because if God says, if you're mine, I'm going to keep you. I'm the author and the finisher of your faith. My gifts and my calling are irrevocable. It can't be undone. Jesus has you and I have him. You're inscribed on the palm of my hands. I can't shake you off, drop you, or wash you off. If I've said it, it's so sure I can tell it to you in the past tense. It's glorified. You don't understand in the context, that's why all things work together for good, right? What is the context? The context of Romans 8.28 is glorification. That at the end, finally, because of the finished work of Christ applied to my life, I will stand before God and Christ will present me blameless. Now that blows a mind, doesn't it? I understand that Christ could be my advocate. I understand He could present me to the Father. But knowing me like I know me, God can present a sinner like me as blameless. That's how it's going to happen. Because Jesus paid it all. There's no more condemnation to those who are in Christ. And God knows this. He knows all things. We read it in verse 13, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or His counselors who have taught Him. Romans eleven thirty four. for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become His counselor. Hebrews four thirteen. there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. That means when you're on the brink of weariness, by the way, and fainting, that means God knows all of your needs even before you're aware of what those needs are. Your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. He knows even the smallest physical things. God numbers your hairs. You understand that's an ever-changing number. For some it's changing more rapidly than others. For some it turns gray, for others it turns loose, and God knows in every moment how many hairs are there. And that's not hard for him because he can count the sands of the sea and the stars of the heavens. All of this is what he has created. He also does no future things. Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me since I appointed the ancient people. And the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. This is who God is, and we need to be reminded of who He is, and we need to be preaching who He is. We need to be asking our people, and we need to be asking one another in discipleship and in Sunday school as we learn, as we walk with one another. Haven't you heard this? Don't you know this? That God is the everlasting God? 
He's there with you in the moment. He was there before the moment. He'll be there after the moment. He never changes and His promises are as sure. His word is as sure as His character and as His nature. He does not faint. He is not weary. His understanding is unsearchable. The hope we have then in verse 29, He gives power to the weak. To those who have no might, He increases strength. Now I know we we like to be strong for the Lord. And we love it whenever God saves a celebrity. Because we all know that God does better if somebody has a bigger platform from which to announce His goodness, right? No, God's strength is shown when we can't. When we're incapable. That's when we know it's His strength and it's His power. He gives power to the weak. Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. There is not a one of us that's going to stand before God on that day and say, look what I did for you. We're going to fall at His feet and thank Him for what Jesus did for us. I'll let you in on something here too. When we stand and we're presented before the Father and He says, well done, good and faithful servant, I have an inkling that when He says that to us, He's going to wink at Jesus. Because he was the one who did the job that had to be done to get us to stand there in the place that belongs to his beloved son. He's pleased in us because he's pleased in Christ. Now Paul talks about the truth here of being weary and faint. He goes on in 2 Corinthians 4, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak. What is our hope in weariness? What is our hope before we faint, before it gets too much? Knowing that He who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. He does the strengthening. He does the raising. So we're told not to lose heart. The outward man is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. And when we look at all that Paul went through, for him to describe that as our light affliction, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I love the line in the hymn. If we were to stand before God and were to proclaim anything about what we had done, we missed the point that when we do stand there, even if we're looking back over a life of suffering and brokenness and persecution and possibly even death. And by the way, if you're called on to die for Christ, please understand this. There's only one way you can blow a Christian and that's up. The worst the world can do to us is send us to meet Jesus face to face. That's the best threat they've got. Do we love this life so much that we would be upset that we might actually finally see Jesus? Is not our heart cry every day, Maranatha? Even so come Lord Jesus. But as we're looking at what they threaten to do to us, the line in the hymn, just one glimpse of Him in glory will all the toils of life repay. 
Imagine it would be that first moment that you open your eyes in glory and see Jesus. What a glorious, glorious day that will be. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, He increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We understand that there are pressures in life. We're tempted to fall away, or at least to fall down and not get up. Paul reminds us, we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Jesus Christ, and we have no confidence in the flesh. We have to see God for who He is, to see ourselves for who we are, and to realize we don't need to have faith in our faith. You've heard this out there. Well, if you just put it out there and if you just believe it, don't have faith in your faith, you will fall. People say, well, you need more faith. If you had faith and it failed, you know, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, you need a breakthrough, you send me $1,000 as a seed of faith and just that little bit and then you'll have a breakthrough. Oh, you didn't get a breakthrough? Oh, well, you didn't have enough faith. So amp your faith up and send me another $1,000. It's not how it works because you understand it's not the size of our faith that matters. We're told if it's just like a mustard seed, you can go mountain, mountain, go jump in the lake and it goes. It's not the amount of the faith. It's the object of the faith. Are we trusting Jesus, in the pressures of life? Are we striving to find Him there? To be able to count it all joy when we fall into various trials. Oh, here's another one of our favorite words. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And you'll hear people say this, don't pray for patience. You better pray for it because you're going to need it. And it takes the Spirit to produce it in us because it does not come naturally. We have to have patience. How do we get patience? By getting pushed, by getting pressured, by getting tried. Now, I, I don't want to upset you because I want you to understand. I want you to understand. God will never put on you more than you can handle. There ought to be a trap door behind the pulpit just drop you into the heretic's pit. No, God will not put on you more than you can handle. Here's the reality. God absolutely will put on you more than you can handle, but it's not more than He can handle. And that's how we learn to handle it. It's His strength. It's His power. It's His doing. So that when we're tried, we can actually be excited about the trial that's coming. Now that might wane pretty quickly as the trial goes on, but you understand that the purpose of the trial is not to cry out and to ask to be delivered from the trial. While there is joy at the end of the trial, that's not the point of the trial. The point of the trial is whatever life throws at you, even if by your own bad decision, that suffering, that circumstance, Jesus is right there with you in it. He's carrying you through it. You've heard about the, the footprints in the sand, right? Where there's two sets of footprints, I walked with Jesus. Where there's one set of footprints, he carried me. I've got a version of that on my desk that is footprints and two ruts. And it says, that's where I dragged you. <laughs> that's the Christian life, isn't it? It's Jesus taking us where he wants us. And we realize when we get there, that's where we were supposed to be. And there he is with us in the middle of it. And we might try to run. We might try to get away. Good job, Jonah. Jonah thought and was willing, you understand, Jonah thought and was willing to die to not obey the call to go preach in Nineveh. When they threw him overboard, he was hoping to die so he did not have to go to Nineveh. That is racial bigotry. 
I am not going to go. Why? Because God is a God of His Word, and if I preach the Word to them, those people are going to get saved, and I cannot stand the thought that those people would get saved. I would rather die. And God said, watch this. got swallowed by a fish. You understand it took him three days in the belly of that fish before he was broken? Such was his hatred for Nineveh. Three days before he repented. And as soon as he did, there he is. Oh, look, there's Nineveh. So in comes a man, spit up from a fish, smelling like a fish, bleached from the acid of a fish, to go walk through a town and preach to a town that worshipped a fish. God has a sense of humor. Dagon. You remember when the ark was set before Dagon, what happened? He fell over and his hands broke off. I didn't know fish had hands. That's creepy. (laughs) Jonah couldn't get away. He preached and there was revival and he moped about it. Firemen? Oh, that God would use some of us like Jonah. We understand it's not that God used Jonah. It was God's Word. And even a fallible, foolish vessel like Jonah, when he preached the Word, God did what He promised to do and brought revival to the city of Nineveh. We're going to be persecuted by the world. Atheists are going to deny God exists. I love R.C. Sproul's definition. An atheist is someone who believes that God does not exist and hates Him with all their guts. An agnostic will question you until you thought that there couldn't be any more questions. Pagans and progressives will try to provoke you. The woke will ask you for evidence. They want evidence. Everybody wants evidence. I want to to encourage you in, in the world of apologetics. If you think you can just come up with enough answers for people to convince them, you will never satisfy their demand for evidence. Because as soon as you supply evidence that they've asked for, they're going to move on to the next request for evidence. They're going to completely discount. Oh, well, never mind. If you can explain that one away, let me find one that you can't. What they're attempting to do is intimidating you to not opening your mouth in the first place because I might not know what to say. Well, preach the Word. And if they ask you for evidence, preach the Word. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And what is faith? What is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. If they want evidence, preach the Gospel to them. And when God opens their eyes, they'll see what they need to see. Don't worry about answering every question perfectly. Engage them, reason with them, but understand, they are blind, deaf, dumb, and dead. And it takes the Spirit applying the Word to regenerate that heart, to remove that heart of stone, to put in that heart of flesh. We were discussing it this afternoon around the table, talking about our conversion experiences, and it's the point that we were dead, and suddenly we were alive, and something was different, and we could see, and we understood, and it was everywhere. How did I miss this? I've read this a hundred times. The Spirit imparts life. You see, the truth is we need to preach and we need to live like we know who Jesus is. Like we know Him by faith. Even more importantly, by the way, than you knowing Jesus, does He know you? Don't ask people to accept Jesus. Ask them if they've been accepted by God. That's the one who does the accepting. We're accepted in the Beloved. By God. Don't ask people if they're seeking after truth. They'll tell you they're spiritual. They'll tell you that they're seeking truth. No, they're not. Because when you tell them the truth, how do they react? Well, you should be more tolerant. They don't tolerate the truth. They don't want the truth. They're not seeking. You want a seeker-sensitive movement in your church? Seek God. But, but, but here's the catch. You can't. God is the seeker. God is the seeker. 
Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. We do need to preach Christ crucified. We do need to preach the attributes of God. We need to introduce our people and our churches to who God is. We don't know Him like we need to know Him. The admonition then is wait on the Lord. Now I've heard this preached before and sometimes the way this is presented is that we just have to understand that if you really want to be content in the Christian life, you have to understand that we're just here to float along on the lazy river of God's providence. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen, so let it be and just float along and trust that God is sovereign. When we read about waiting on the Lord in these final verses, waiting sounds a whole lot like work. Now first, let's define wait. The word for wait here means to rest in confident hope because of who God is. Isaiah covered that in the great passage in chapter six, or chapter 9, verse 6. Who is this God? Well, He's God who came as a child. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon His shoulder, and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is who God is. To wait on Him is to have the ability to rest in confident hope. There's a hymn, some of you may know, this hymn was actually published in 1837 and it was titled, We'll Work Till Jesus Comes. 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 Then we'll be gathered home. Part of my background in my family long years ago was a primitive Baptist circuit-riding pastor who planted churches in the Texas Panhandle, Oklahoma, and New Mexico. If you're not familiar with the primitive Baptists, the Sovereign Grace and primitive Baptists used to be the same, and they had an argument over evangelism. The Sovereign Grace said, we go preach the gospel to everyone. The primitive Baptists said, don't preach it. Don't you dare throw the gospel before the non-elect. I had a primitive Baptist elder one time who told me, I asked him what was his assurance he was going to heaven, and he said, well, if I'm elect, I'll go. Well, do you know if you're elect? You're supposed to make a calling election, sure. Well, I know if I'm elect if after I die, I wake up in heaven. That's not how this works. That's, that's, that's not how it works. They changed this hymn. 1961, in the Primitive Baptist hymnal, they changed it till, we'll wait till Jesus comes. And I actually heard one of the preachers at a conference expound upon this. We just need to wait till Jesus comes. Don't, don't worry about making disciples. Don't worry about evangelism. Certainly don't send anybody onto the mission field. God's going to save who He wants to save. He doesn't need you to do it. He elects. He's going to accomplish it in His way, in His time. God doesn't need you. So let's just wait till Jesus comes. So we're all just going to stand around and wait. Y'all ready? Let's just wait. That's not the life we're called to, is it? The life we're called to is to work till Jesus comes. And what we find out is as we're working until He comes, we are actually waiting because our work shows an anticipation that He's coming back and that He finds us faithful about the business when He gets here. He says, those who wait on the Lord renew their strength. They press on. They persevere. Philippians chapter 3 says, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let as many of us as are mature have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Press on, stretch, sprint, strain to achieve the call. He says you'll mount up with wings as eagles. You'll run 
and not be weary. You'll walk and you'll not faint to mount up with wings as eagles. Paul reminds us in Colossians chapter 3, if you were then raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with God in Christ, with Christ in God. We're talking about this earlier too, about the deeper life movement, Watchman Nee, Witness Lee. This idea that we, 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 we can't be too heavenly minded. We need a deeper life here and now in this world. A deeper life with Christ. We need to go inward, not upward. Well, the Bible says, look up, go up, set your mind on things above. I love it that a preacher years ago said, there are those who say, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. The point is, if you're not heavenly minded, you can't be any earthly good. Because it's only by looking into the treasures and the joys and the depository of heaven that we have anything to say to anyone down here in this life. So we need to mount up. We need to fly. We need to soar. We need to be pressing the boundaries. We need to be growing deeper and stronger. And you understand how that works in the Christian life. You win by losing. You live by dying. You get by giving. It's all completely opposite of the way we understand it. This life of discipleship, we attain victory through surrender. We walk with Christ and can overcome the flesh. How? By walking in the Spirit. How does that work? Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I do not like all or nothing verses. Because that means if I'm fulfilling the lust of the flesh, I'm not walking in the Spirit. Because it says if I'm walking in the Spirit, I won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. How does that work? Simple. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Die to everything you are outside of Christ. And then find yourself working. And people say, well, what about, where do these works come from? We know this from Ephesians 2. We all love verses 8 and 9, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Well, what does he go on to say? So that we can walk in good works that he has set before us beforehand so that we might walk in them. Here is what is so great about the Christian life. Here's why we don't need to worry about growing weary or fainting. He gives us repentance. He gives us life, repentance, faith. Suddenly we're awake and we realize what we need. We flee to Christ. We repent of our sin. We place our faith in Him. We are converted. At that point, justification, conversion, and then we begin this work of sanctification. We look forward to that work of glorification. But as we're walking moment by moment by moment with Him, we understand this is all given to us from Him. John says it. What do you have that hasn't been given to you from above? All of it. The faith, the grace, even the good works you're supposed to be doing now, the faith that saves you, that is a faith that is a working faith. We, we wonder, well, what good works can I do today? Well, I've done my good deed for the day. No, that's not what it's about. It's about the fact that this has already been laid out for us and we just need to do it. We just need to do it. I know that sounds simple, but... If it's according to the Word of God, if it's in accordance with what He's commanded, if it doesn't violate the Scripture, if, our, if the desires of our heart matches what God is telling us in, in, in the Word, then, then here's the encouragement. If you're encouraged and your heart matches the Word of God, do what you want because that is the will of God. He gives us the desire to do what is right. He gives us the ability to do what is right. So then what do we need to do? What is right? Be obedient. Mount up with wings as eagles. Run. Run the race that's set before you. This is Hebrews chapter 12. 
Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This Christian life is a race. Christ has already run it. We know in Hebrews he's also referred to as our pioneer. The Greek word there means the trailblazer. He's the one that's already made the way so that we can walk in it. And you know, in reality, it's not that he made the way. It's that he is the way. You want to walk like you should walk? Walk in Jesus. People talk about getting up every morning and putting on the spiritual armor. You understand Paul uses that. It's a one-time thing. You put that armor on when you got saved. You don't have to get up every day and put it on. It's on. You're in Jesus. The Spirit took you, immersed you into Christ. Now you're clothed with Him. He's your armor. Don't believe me? Belt of truth. He is the truth. Breastplate of righteousness. It's His righteousness. The helmet of salvation. It's the salvation of the Lord. Have you ever noticed David says that? David does not say, restore to me the joy of my salvation. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. We've got the sword, which is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We've got the shield of faith. What's the source of that faith? Do you understand that Jesus, in the Gospel of John, says, this is the work of my Father that you believe in me. People say, faith's not a work. Yes, it is, just not yours. Faith is God's work in you. And our shoes that were shod with the preparation of the Gospel of peace. Whose Gospel and who sends us? Whose Word do we preach? We're putting on Jesus so that we might fight this fight. We're told we're to pursue righteousness, to pursue godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. This is a lot to be chasing after, isn't it? But we're also told to run away from things, flee youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. We, we miss the work here because we always like to say that. Wait on the Lord and you'll renew your strength. Well, what is the purpose of renewed strength? So that you can fly. So that you can run. So that you can walk without growing weary and without fainting. That walk that we're called to walk is explained in Ephesians I've actually just spent the last year going through Ephesians 4 and 5 in Sunday school in a series titled Walk Worthy. There are different ways that we're told and commanded and enabled to walk. But he starts off there by saying, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And here is the substance that undergirds our ability to do that, to walk like we're supposed to walk. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. You see, Paul in Ephesians takes us back to Isaiah chapter 40 and he says, as you're waiting on the Lord, you've got to know who He is. You have to know that He is your comfort. You have to know that there's nobody that can be compared to Him, that there's nowhere else to turn, that there's nobody else to help you. It's all Him. We have to preach a high view of God because you can't preach any other view of Him because He is high and lifted up. And as we preach that high view of God, His sheep hear His voice and they'll come hungry to be fed the Word of God. They'll come when they need to be comforted because they're worn out and they're weary and they're sad and they're about to faint when they need strength 
Psalm 73, 6, David said, My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The only question that remains then is, what if our faith fails? What if we just absolutely fall flat? 2 Timothy answers that. This is a faithful saying, if we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. Often when we fall, we think we have failed. We didn't have enough faith. We can't do it. You're on the right track there. We can't do it. But even if we fail, even if we're faithless, He remains faithful. Saints, brothers and sisters, pastors, if you're struggling, tired, worn out, frustrated, wondering why it is that a whole bunch of sinners can claim to be saved and get together and have problems, if we're fighting those battles, working through sanctification, hoping and grunting and straining to bear the fruit of the Spirit, if you want help in that moment, stop and remind yourself from God's Word just who He is. And then you ask, what can stop us in obeying the call and walking like we should walk? I want to finish with another hymn. This one borrowed from our Presbyterian brothers. The hymn, Rise Up, O Church of God. When we see God for who He is, the church will rise up and it will march and it will conquer. Now, I didn't just go post-mill on you. Please, watch it. It means that we're going to take the gospel and through the preaching of that gospel, the sheep are going to hear His voice. People are going to be converted. And this is the glorious news about preaching the gospel. It's through the preaching of the gospel that sinners are saved and that saints are sanctified. So we can accomplish both with one mission. Preach the Word wherever you go. God will use that Word preached to save sinners and to sanctify saints, to conform us to the image of Christ. The hymn says, Rise up, O church of God, have done with lesser things. Give heart and mind and soul and strength to serve the King of kings. Rise up, O church of God, His kingdom tarries long. Bring in the day of brotherhood and end the night of wrong. Rise up, O sons of God, the church for you doth wait. Her strength unequal to her task. Rise up and make her great. How do we do that? The fourth verse tells us. Lift high the cross of Christ. Tread where His feet have trod. As followers of the Son of Man, rise up, O church of God. The important thing there is not that we're the church. It's that we're the church of God. It has to be for Him and to Him and through Him, all about Him. That's why your testimony is not the gospel. Your testimony is important, but it's not the gospel. Preach the gospel. Demonstrate with your testimony what God did in your life. Preach. Show people who God is. Some will hate you for it. You'll pay a price. Some in the church will hate you for it. You'll pay a price. But you show people God. And those who see Him for who He is will see themselves for who they are. And that will either drive them in terror out of His presence or they'll come running to the throne 
pleading for grace and for mercy and for pardon. You see, we need to want Jesus for Jesus. To want Him no matter what it cost us. To want Him no matter what else is out there. Just give me Jesus. When we see Him, we're beholding our God. This is what's presented for us in Isaiah chapter 40. The God who is. And that is more than enough. Let's pray together. Father, how we do thank You for Your Word, for who You are. At times we do praise You for what You've done for us, but that's just secondary. You've done what You've done for us because of who You are. Remind us Your attributes, Your holiness, Your greatness, Your goodness, Your perfections, Your eternality, Your omnipotence, Your omnipresence. All of this. Remind us who You are. As you reveal yourself to us in the scriptures, continue to draw us deeper in our walk with you. Help us to know you and to know you better and to know you better day after day after day. Father, for those who are weary, those who are ready to faint or wish there was a way out, show yourself to them in your strength. Remind them that it's not about us at all. It's all about you and what Christ has come to do, and that is to magnify your name. Father, we confess we can't make your name any bigger than it is. It is the greatest name that there ever will be. And yet what we can do is shine a light on it and show people who you are, praying that as they see you, they'll be drawn to you so that we can rejoice with them as you give to them new life just like you did to us. We thank you for the reminder these two days, the reminder of who you are. And we praise you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.